latest with you? Where are you at right now? Well, everything's good. Still working out of this COVID environment. Um, you know, since the world has changed, we've had to change along with it, so to speak. But of course. there's an old saying about the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> in, in, in my particular job, there's not a day that I haven't been in someone else's home. There's not a day that I haven't been still in the streets. Gotcha. I've had to work more cautiously. Uh, I had to work more mindfully, mm-hmm. not just in regards to the job, but also to my own safety and then what I bring back home. I've had to change up some, uh, or reinstitute, if you will, some of my uh, my dealings. Uh, when I come home now, I pull into, you know, come into the garage, I, I basically change out of my clothes so that if I've come across anything out there in the street, I'm not at least tracking it into the house and I run directly up, you know, kind of like what the uh, medical professionals do, you know, run up, take a shower real quick, that type of thing. So, um, but no, other than that, it's been life as usual. Speaking on work specifically, how is how has COVID-19 possibly changed procedures on how you guys go about the nine to five or your typical day? Um, the way you guys interact with families, kids, how, is, how has that changed at all? It has changed, but it has not changed in my opinion, to where it has meaningful impact. As an example, the agency I work for is a statewide agency. Mm-hmm. However, <clears throat> Cook County, so in Illinois and in Cook County in Chicago, 95% of our staff are people of color. Yeah. 80% of the people of the population that we deal with are people of color. My argument to the agency was that there should be added and increased mechanisms and policies and procedures put in for our populations. Why? Because we are basically a targeted population. We're the population that has more COVID uh, cases than any other population in any other racial population. Cook County has the highest number of cases than any other part of the state. There are more deaths of people of color than anybody else nationwide. The CDC has come out and had, had those same statistics. So our agency needed to address that as well. And they were very reluctant to. In fact, to this day, they still haven't. What percentile would you say makes up the, the overhead or like the management? If we're going off of like mm-hmm. black and white, essentially. You're, you're talking as far as racially, a racial breakdown or? Racial breakdown, correct. Okay. We currently have a, uh, an African-American director. Okay. We currently have a large number of our senior staff, our senior uh, administrators who are African-American. So it becomes lopsided because again, you have Cook County, there's an old political axiom. There's the state of Cook County and the rest of Illinois. So if you look at Cook County, overwhelmingly, the people in positions of authority, the people on the ground, uh, the, the middle managers and all that, those are people of color. But when you get to the rest of the state, that's when you start to see that the shade change dramatically. Makes so sense. when you look at Cook County, if you just if you just viewed our agency through the lens of Cook County, well, we're we're all minority. Right. But when you get outside of Cook County, so actually we're only uh, probably I'll say about thirty percent of our workforce are people of color. But that's because the concentration is in Cook County. Gotcha. So I didn't. I never even looked at it from that mm-hmm. perspective. Um, even in comparison to, you know, my mom is a social worker as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the, the makeup of her office, um, I can't see the, the difference. Let me add this. Um, okay. Even comparing your mother's okay. office to, to my office. As you see, when you start to move down state, you start to see more, uh, more Caucasians in offices. Mm-hmm. 
but you also see starting to see more Caucasians making decisions on people of color. Gotcha. So even though now, when you talk about frontline workers, when you talk a lot, talk about uh, first responders and that type of thing, one of the reasons that our, our communities, our black and brown communities have been imp impacted more by COVID is because we typically have those type of jobs. We're the people knocking on doors. We're the people uh, actually out into the, you know, out into the streets. Right. In fact, this whole thing has, has, made, has made me change my, my mindset. I'm actually going to start, uh, come recently, I'm going to start a, uh, a discussion in regards to even our job titles. Okay. Social worker, okay? Um, when you think about them, when you break that down, a social worker generally does what? It interacts with the family. Also, social workers are known uh, to go into the field, as they call it. When you talk, when you take those root words, field and worker, that has direct connections back to slavery. True. All right. The, true. The, you know, people of color were the workers. They were in the field. Right. But we say it casually on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, I'm going into the field, you know, uh, or, or even on our, a lot of our forms, a lot of our travel forms, field, you know. And, and, and so I had a, some years ago, I had a, uh, another, another worker kind of point out to me and says, you know, even the, the term worker has, has connections to communism. You know, in, in, in communist uh, Russia, they, you know, the people were known as the, the workers, you know, the ones mm -hmm. in the factories and everything. And uh, that, so again, names matter. So if you allow me to transition for a bit, when it, so now the discussion is about the naming of a lot of these military insta installations, mm -hmm. all right? This is the only country that honors its losers. A lot of these military, a lot of these military bases are named after Confederate uh, generals or con Confederate officers. I've noticed that as well. All right? They were on the losing side. There's no other country that has monuments, that has, that has large edifices, if you will, named after the losing side, right. or named for the losing side. But see, if you really, you know, I've come to the conclusion now that even though the South may have lost the Civil War, you, if you look at the war as the battle, they, didn't, they lost the battle, they didn't lose the war because the war still was keeping blacks enslaved, keeping blacks, you know, minimalized, uh, keeping people of color marginalized. And so by erecting these large edifices of, 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 of uh, Lee yeah. and of Sherman and of people like that, you know, and having them, you know, focal points in the center of, of towns, still keep people, at least people of color, still remind them, hey, we're still out there. The ideology that, is still alive. I exactly, yeah. exactly. So words matter, names matter, and it has become so ingrained in our society right now mm -hmm. that um, it matters so much that it doesn't matter, that we just take it on, we just take it on as, as commonplace. Right. And, and we almost take it as pride. Oh, yeah, I'm going into the field. Yes, 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 I'm the worker. You know, I've, I've been in court a couple of times. You know, who's the worker in this case? Me, judge. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm proudly step up being the worker. That's when no one, my, actually my title is child protection investigator. That's my actual title. Mm -hmm. But I'm known as the worker. Gotcha. Yeah. So how has, amidst everything going on right now in our country, how has the social climate um, in the workplace for you changed at all? It hasn't changed a bit. From, from this standpoint, again, keep in mind that all of my colleagues are people of color. Mm -hmm. So we all can come from the same communities anyway. When um, 
part of what I do, not only in my job, the job has allowed me to be involved in some other organizations which have impact into the community. You know, I'm involved in the union, which then we also are, in, are impacted and have involvement with uh, politicians, with, with people in politics. And one of the messages that we're trying to get over to the politicians is that don't just look at us as, as union people, as just this, this omnipotent organization that hands out endorsements and, and checks sometimes. We are made up of the people that sit next to you in your churches, synagogues, and mosques. We're made, up to, we're made up of people that stand behind you in the grocery lines. We live in the same communities. Right. So because we, we are still people of the community, and also we're taxpayers, because they're, they're very quick to say, oh, those people over there are, you know, they, they're causing the, uh, the state to go into debt and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. We are the very same people. We are your constituents. Right. So in regards to this job, a lot of us, a, a lot of us live in the communities that we go and investigate. I've had, inv I've had uh, you know, some of my colleagues that are actually knocking on their neighbor's doors saying, hey, we got this report saying that you abused and neglected your child. Right. Which then puts them at risk because now we've had, our, we've had some of our colleagues that uh, people have come out with their cameras and, and then videotape them and their interactions with, uh, you know, with their family or videotape their, uh, their license plate going down the street or something like that. Or even some, I would imagine some cases of retaliation almost. A lot of that has happened. We, unfortunately, now this was, uh, this is a, you know, this is bad across the, the table, but we actually had two years ago, we actually had a, a uh, colleague of ours that was killed that okay. went out on a call. Uh, and actually, unfortunately, the police tipped the family off that we were coming. The father hid and wait. The woman gets out of her car. He attacks her, stump, stumps her head in. She went into a coma September 17th, 2017. She died February 9th, 2018. Never came out of her coma. Man. Now, this was in Sterling, Illinois, a little white suburb. So, the, the, you know, this was a white family, a, a, a white worker. Not that race matters at that point, mm -hmm. because again, we're just out doing a job, but it matters from, from this perspective. It matters from how the white father was treated mm -hmm. versus how we as people of color are, are treated. We are, and, and this is also, where I think some of the self-loathing sometimes comes in in our communities. And it's very, it can become very evident in my field. We are harder on ourselves than any other, uh, any other race, so to speak. I would agree. I've, I've seen, give you a very, very quick scenario. A mother uh, lets her good friend, male friend, drive her car. She's in the passenger seat. Her son's in the back seat in the car seat. The male friend decides, they come to a railroad crossing, gates are down, train is still a little distance off. He says, you know what, I can beat this train. He tries to zip around the, uh, the down arms. They get hit by the train on the mother's side, all right? She's really medically, uh, medically mixed up, uh, banged up. The kid, kid lived, kid was a little banged up. The driver didn't get a scratch, okay? Right. So, and we stepped, we got involved because there was pure, there was, basic neglect in regards to this man trying to cross the tracks. So there was an allegation on him about neglect to this child. Do you know my agency made me add an allegation to this mother and indicate her saying that she was guilty as well because she should have known who she had driving her car. She should have known that he was going to do something like that. How would you know that? Right. Where, you're, where the three of you are driving here today, how would he know that you're going to run a red light? Right. 
you know, that type of thing. But that's because it was a woman of color. In my, again, in my field, why did the, the AJ friend, the little, uh, the, the little Caucasian boy that was saw in the uh, northern suburbs, buried in, in a shallow ditch, why did that become such a, 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 big, a big deal? It became a big deal because of what this agency missed. How many times have we, have we investigated that family and gave them a pass? Mm -hmm. Had that case been in Cook County, there never would have been an AJ friend case. Why? Because we are so quick in Cook County to take little black and brown babies. I can name to you now, also tainted with the population that I deal with. I work on the south side of Chicago, so there aren't many white families that work on the south side, but occasionally we get the few. Right. I can probably count on the 6,000 6, plus cases that I've dealt with. I can probably count on one hand, two hands, the number of white families I've dealt with. But out of those white families, historically, and I can tell you to a point, the way this agency deals with them and the way the courts have dealt with them, if we even got into court, have been dramatically different. Dramatically different. So much so to where I'm challenged in regards to even making a prudent decision, the same decision I made on the black family, you know, just two hours prior to that, mm -hmm. or even two hours after that. So how we view race, bringing it back into what the context is of, of, of today's social uh, upheaval, so to speak, this was one of the first times, even though we had the Rodney King tapes, even though we've, we've, we've had other uh, videos of people being, uh, people of color being mistreated and even killed and abused by people in authority. What was so telling about this case was the fact that you actually got to see a person lose their life over an eight minutes plus span. You saw a person, you saw a person, a white person, a person in the, what is called the, you know, the predominant race, so to speak, right. <laughs> kneeling on this person's neck, hands in his pocket, being very casual and cavalier about it. When that person was handcuffed, the person of color was handcuffed and, and, and had no, was at no risk to anyone. Mm -hmm. All right, but you actually saw them and you even saw, heard and saw spectators. That's why they took the video because they were so appalled about what they were seeing and they were begging and pleading to, look, give this man a break. He's down. Right. Just arrest him, put him in the car and take him on like you normally do. Right. All right. But you actually saw this person expire in front of you. That offended a lot of the sensibilities of white people because that was indefensible. Right. They could defend the Rodney King beating. I've had conversations with, uh, as you know, we have many relatives who are on LAPD. Mm -hmm. I've had conversations with them in regards to, because one of them was actually on the force back then. His comment to me was, the whole issue with Rodney King was, was not the fact that they hit him so many times, is that they, hit him, they didn't hit him right. Because had they hit him the right way, broke his arm or something, he wouldn't be able to get up. But because Rodney King kept trying to get up, that's why it was justified in their own minds to continue to beat. This man was down. He was at no risk to no one. He was not moving, he was not doing anything, even prior to him expiring. Right. White people couldn't defend that. And because they, can't, they couldn't uh, defend that, and because of all the other, uh, the other instances that come along the way, you know, they talk about the straw that broke the camel's back. What people fail to realize sometimes is the other million straws underneath that one straw. Exactly. All right, so it was the other million straws that came to this one poignant moment. Uh, so, but also the symbolism, knee on the neck. The neck has always been used as a form of torture, 
as a form of terror to, to black communities. When they enslaved, you know, went over to Africa and enslaved Africans to bring them across for the Middle Passage, not only did they hand shackle them and leg shackle them, they also put a brace around their neck. All right. Very few other societies have used, you see use the neck in the manner that we do. All right. uh, lynching around the neck, chokeholds around the neck. It, it is used as a form of. Never thought you know, about it that way. It's interesting. The the National Lynching Museum in um, Alabama. Museum. Yes, there's a, there's a museum. Just okay. opened up maybe about maybe less than five years ago. Oh, so this is a new thing. Yes. There is, it chronicles all the lynchings, the illegal lynchings, if you will. Well, lynching is illegal, but all the lynchings, basically from Reconstruction up until the 19, I want to say late 1950s. Mm -hmm. uh, there used to be, there, there used to be a, uh, the NAACP in New York used to sit out a flag on their office every day. A person was lynched today. And that flag was out almost daily. During I've the night, you know. All right. So, in their museum, in their main hall, they basically have 800 documented cases of lynching, mm -hmm. and so they have 800 uh, artifacts, if you will, hanging from the ceiling. And it either has the name of the person that was lynched that day, or if they don't know the name, at least the date that someone they knew they, they knew they confirmed that someone was lynched. They just didn't know who it was. Right. All right. It's interesting because it's hanging from the ceiling. So when you walk into the main uh, the, the main uh, exhibit, you're forced to look up. And what are you doing? You're exposing your neck. And that was, a, that was an intended part. That was the intended, that was part of the intent behind the exhibit. You're forced to expose your neck to kind of give the symbolism. Play on the psyche. Play on the yeah. psyche, exactly. But also to show and, and demonstrate, you know, how, how vulnerable you are in this state. Mm -hmm. All right. So, the kneeling on the neck, the brother's life being taken by the neck, because actually in, in, in legal terms, that's considered a lynching, right? right? Um, that, I think, subconsciously has kind of kicked into and, and really just infuriated our community to where we started to say, okay, enough is enough. Now, communities oftentimes when there's moments of, of, of unrest, moments of uh, just social dissidence, different factions start to creep in and they start to poison the well, so to speak. So the protesting is one thing about the social ills. The looting is something else. Even with Rodney King, uh, the, the riots in L.A., the lootings, you know, became a, another issue. I remember there was a, um, one interview done with a family and a black man and a brother said, yeah, I went into that store and I took eight pairs of shoes. He said, because this is the first time in my, in my adult life that I've been able to put brand new shoes on all my kids' feet at the same time. Crazy. Now, uh, one thing that didn't get played up after Rodney King was that a lot of people that went in, stole washers and dryers and stole household items and everything, mm -hmm. they had a moment of conscience and they brought the stuff back. You know, there are people out here, so you, you'll even see in the riots here, the looting here people of color and the people from all nationalities started to come out and start to help sweep up. They weren't asked right. to, you know, uh, Kamaria went out and, and, and participated in some of that. Our really? sister, your sister, you know. <laughs> um, so 
because we are we are a frustrated community, but we are also a community of purpose and a community of of morals. You know, a lot of people fail to realize when we when blacks first got the right to vote, we were Republicans. Right. We we were a very conservative. We were fiscally conservative and, and also morally conservative. We were a conservative community. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party moved away from us. We didn't move away from the Republicans. You know, uh, 1960s, <laughs> when the, the, the Dixiecrats, if you think about history, the Dixiecrats, because they didn't like the Civil Rights Voting Act, they were all, uh, they were in the Democratic Party, so to speak, but they turned Republican. That's how the South basically became full Republican. Because also keep in mind, after Reconstruction, there were more blacks uh, in, in the House, in, in the Senate, Senate and House, and in, in politics in the South than there are now. We have what, maybe two, three black senators, right? Uh, you know, back then I think we had close to sixty. Really? Yeah. I wasn't aware. You know, so and most and the majority of them were from the South. Mm -hmm. So when you try, when you look at. You can't just look at this in a fishbowl and say, oh, this is happening today. You have to go back and, and look historically over where we've come from, uh, what we've seen. In, in my lifetime, um, I never met King, but I was born during the time of King. I remember when uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. I'll share a quick story with you. I was in first grade when uh, King was assassinated. Mm -hmm. right? The neighborhood that I lived in in Chicago, uh, 82nd and Ridgeland, off of 82nd and Ridgeland, it was still a mixed community. When we moved into the, our neighborhood, we were actually like the third black family to move in. Within seven years, there was only one white family left. My parents tell the story that when they came in to buy the house, the woman of the house, she showed the house and the man sat there with a newspaper up to his face and would not acknowledge that they were even there, even though they were there to buy his house, to give him money, to give, allow him to be able to move out on, under white flight. He wouldn't acknowledge that, that these black folks was in his house, mm -hmm. all right? Um, I had a little, one of my little classmates, uh, her first name was Laura, little white girl. She lived about three blocks from the school, I lived about seven blocks from the school. So on my way to school, I would stop by her house and pick her up, and, uh, or stop by and get her, and then we'd walk to school together. Back in that day, now keep in mind, this is uh, 1968, a lot of people f fail to realize this as well, there was no lunch at school at the time. Right. So actually you would go to school in the morning, go back home for lunch, go back to school and then come back, <laughs> you know, after school. Completely so, different from what we used to. It, it, exactly. So, you know, we, that was our routine. I'd drop her off, pick her up, and that, that type of thing. The day that King was assassinated, uh, Chicago, as it did most major, uh, major urban cities, rioted. I remember our teachers were frantically running around the hallways, and I can remember this almost like yesterday, and our, our teacher kind of came to us and said, listen, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of things going on in the street. Some of your parents should be outside waiting for you. If they're not, just go straight home. Don't, don't stop or do anything, just go straight home because you know, we don't want anybody to get hurt. My mother happened to be outside. My, my younger brother, Brian, was in a stroller. She came up, pushed Brian in a stroller up to the school to come pick me up to make sure that I got home safely. School was out for about two weeks from the riot and all that. After things calmed down, the school reopened. I went back into my routine. I went to go uh, stop by Laura's house to pick her up. Normally she was ready, but if she wasn't ready, her mother would at least invite me in. This time I get to the door, she wasn't ready, and her mother said, oh, wait a minute, I'll, I'll, I'll get Laura for you. So I'm standing on the doorstep. Laura comes to the door, and what I now know was a prepared speech. She says, sorry, but I can't play with black kids anymore, and she shuts the door in my face. She didn't come to school that day and never came back to school. What year was this again? 
68. Okay. All right. So Laura leaves. Uh, I mean, I leave, go to school. Again, Laura, Laura never showed up. And within, I want to say within two weeks, their family moved out the area. Two years later, so we're talking 1970, Chicago instituted their uh, magnet school program. The first magnet school program, uh, the first magnet school was Robert A. Black. Mm -hmm. Black was, at that time, it was an experimental school, and it was such a school to where they had the entire school was 25% black, 25% white, 25% Hispanic, 25% other. Every classroom had the same makeup, 25% black, white, Hispanic, and other. Unbeknownst to me, my parents had put me on the list to get into black. I actually made it into the school. Why not? Because I was the next person on the list. A black male in the third grade left and they went down the list till they found a black male in the third grade because they had to keep the composition. So question real quick. Mm -hmm. In today's terms, would that be considered affirmative action? Yes. I, I believe that that was kind of the, it was an offshoot from not only. That was the construct they were trying to get to. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, so my first day at, at, at Black, my mother, we're riding a CTA bus. Now, keep in mind, I'm, I'm in third grade now, all right, because a little bit later, I was riding the the third. I was riding the CTA by myself, a third grader. But you could do that back then. Yeah. But now, <laughs> my first day at Black, I get off the bus, get into school, uh, go through the first part of my day, go to lunch, and I'm standing in the lunch line, and who do I see? Laura. For whatever reason, though, nobody in the school knew that we knew each other, and not that it even mattered. But for whatever reason, we had become so racially sophisticated that we never publicly acknowledge each, each other from that point on. We, we saw each other, gave each other the, the, the head nod, so to speak, mm -hmm. all right? But we never, we never publicly spoke. Again, not that it even mattered, but for some reason it mattered to us. Right. And I tell, you know, I think back and I, t I admit, I always knew I was black, but that was the first time I realized that it mattered. Mm -hmm. So again, when you take all that and you look at your own personal history. You, you look at the history of this, uh, this country. You look at the history of what's going on here in society. You have to then have a, not only a thorough understanding of self, but a thorough understanding of, the, of, of, of that around you and where you've come from to fully understand the impact of what's going on today. But here's the other thing. There can be a lot going on but if there is no real constructive point to get to, mm -hmm. if there's no real constructive goal, then this is still, this doesn't mean anything. This would just be another blip in society. So how do you feel with the current affairs, with the looting, um, the people knocking down monuments, everything kind of going on in that realm? What do you feel like is the end goal from your perspective? What do you feel like we as a people are trying to move into for us? I will say this, even though I talked about, kind of talked negatively about the, the looting initially. Looting does serve a purpose. Frederick Douglass once said, power concedes nothing without a demand and never has and it never will. This looting and some of this social unrest brings to light the point that, hey, we are a people over here that have something to say. Mm -hmm. uh, per, kind of triangulating that a little bit, 
what made Martin Luther King so great, not only that he was great in his own right, but was a Malcolm X. And Malcolm right. X even said in himself, you white folks would be wise to listen to Brother Martin because then you'd have to deal with somebody like me and I, and I don't have the same views as he does. Mm -hmm. All right, you know, I'll come, you know, he's standing there, the, the iconic photo of him standing there, with, you know, with, with the rifle That's in his the hand. Yeah. All right, but that was after they firebombed his house. You know, so he said, if you all wanted to go about it peacefully, then you need to go deal with Brother Martin because if you don't deal with it peacefully, you're gonna have to deal with me. Mm -hmm. So the end game, and this is where we have to be careful. We have to be careful about what it is constructively we're, ask, we're actually looking for. Because now there's a whole lot of different subjects and topics being thrown around. Do we, do we want reparations? Do we, uh, you know, but the question is, what is it that will be meaningful to us? What will re meaningfully impact black folks? Because um, reparations, a, a payout won't change injustice. A payout won't change like hatred. It exactly. won't change certain characteristics. So. Again, back to your point, it's kind of like, what is the what is the most meaningful solution? You know, I wish I had that answer. I yeah. I don't. Um, but I also have that com that conversation I've had on a couple of occasions with people in regards to President Obama. There are some blacks that feel Obama didn't do enough for black people. So I always this question: and we've what this what <laughs> what one singular thing could he as a president do that would directly and, and and profoundly impact black people and black people alone? Right. There, there isn't a particular thing that he could do other than help broaden conversations. So if you, if you noticed uh, Jeff Sessions just recently, because he's running for his old Senate seat mm -hmm. down in, uh, I forget where he's from, but, but down in the South. He, he brought up a, an Obama uh, experiment, if you will. If you remember when William Lewis Gates, uh, the professor out of Harvard, and he, and he does a lot of those you know, historical uh, documentaries. If you remember when he was arrested going into his own house uh, and, o and Obama brought him and the police officer in and they called it the beer summit. They had a, a beer in the Rose Garden and the, uh, you know, and, and, and just kind of, uh, Jeff Sessions brought that up just recently in one of his speeches where you had a president bringing in a known criminal and having a beer with him, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but then he incorrectly said he didn't have the police officer because he was trying to show he's, he's hard on, you know, he's tough on crime and that type. He didn't have the police officer even though the officer was there. But still, they, they skew the whole premise of what that whole thing was about. Obama was trying to start a national conversation. That, that what he, you know, what he was trying to, to get toward. Uh, so again, he couldn't do a, an executive order. You know, hell, he could write an executive order and say, I ban racism. It's meaningless. Right. <laughs> so the president can't do that, but the president can set the stone, I mean, set the standard. That's why people, you know, a lot of people on Trump, he does, why don't you wear a mask when you're in public? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, 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 not a, it's not about that. And actually some conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theorists will, will tell you that it's easier to kill a million people than to save them. So you let this virus just run through the, you know, run through the communities and everything, particularly since it's impacting people of color more. Exactly. All right. And I did watch that, uh, that link you sent me yesterday. Really? <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, but again, trying to get back to your question in regards to what, what is it that we would want mm -hmm. coming out of this time? It's so many things we need. 
you know, you, we'd have to prioritize, but then, then this is where our community, I think, is failing. We no longer have those, those voices or those people that we go to to call our leaders anymore. We no longer have a king. Uh, some people feel Jesse Jackson is antiquated. Uh, Al Sharpton, they, you know, a lot of people aren't on board with. We don't have a singular voice to be a spokesperson for, or to at least that the majority of people in our communities will look to and say, okay, I trust this person to further our cause. And I, so. I believe historically, the movement was always led by the youth, essentially. Correct. If you take it back to Huey P. Newton, mm -hmm. um, Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton, right. Um, people that just came along that timeline of, of uh, that period, it always, the, the, the movement was always led by the youth or mm -hmm. people with youth. Mm -hmm. um, so I think now that may be a big hindrance on us that we're heavily relying on the Jesse Jacksons and mm -hmm. um, the Al Sharpens. These are people that are well into their 60s. Um, so or 70s now, yeah. Or 70s. Yeah, yeah. So do you feel like now, do you feel like the younger generation, we need to take a step up? How do you feel about the changing of the guards almost or like the people that need to be at the forefront of these initiatives that we really want to see out? Part of the problem with the people at the forefront, the, the Jacksons and the Sharptons and all that, is that once people get a taste of, of power or at least celebrity, mm -hmm. it's hard to give it up. And so there is this internal fight in regards to allowing younger people into those circles gotcha. and allowing them to have a prominent voice because people want, you know, Jackson still wants to be Jackson. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, I've, I've actually had some private conversations with, with, with Jackson and he's a, He's a sharp guy, but unfortunately, he's past his time. He's mm -hmm. past his prime. You and know? I feel like that that internal issue, I feel like it shows across our community in several aspects mm -hmm. as far as people just not knowing essentially how to pass the torch. People don't know how to pass the torch, and we don't know how to accept the torch being passed because one of the things that our community is real quick to do is, oh, look at him over there. Now he thinks he's something. You know, they're, they're quick to go after the person that is rising to prominence because mm -hmm. now they think that you have an upper hand or that, that somehow you are, you know, flossing, so to speak, not realizing that what you do is for you. Uh, and, and not necessarily for you. What you do is for the community, for the broader community. Uh, it's not for you, per se. Mm -hmm. um, in my, my little role with the, uh, with the union, I was paid a, actually paid a compliment the other day, a, a brother. Uh, retired on the first prior to his retirement he was having some issues and you know issues on the job and I just consulted with him on a couple of occasions and he said listen man he said uh I know we've never had much much real dealing or interaction but one thing I want to say is that you've always been a solid brother he said you've always spoke you've always spoke truth you always spoke a lot of common sense he said I respect you for that this is somebody I had minimal contact with but again you don't know who's watching you you don't know how you're you know how you're impacting other people just by your walk just just by your you know your, your daily interactions and everything so you don't necessarily have to have a national platform in order to make make a you know to, to make an impact gotcha. I, I was sitting back the other day man and said looking over my my little so-called uh bio if you will or thinking about internally my bio I said man you know i've in the last few years i've actually done a few things i've been quoted in the wall street journal and in the, in the london you know the london <laughs> globe I've, yeah. I've i've done a few things you know but none of that matters tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Hell, it doesn't matter today because all that happened yesterday. <laughs> I 
That's All interesting. Right. So speaking, that's a good transition point. So speaking on the London Globe, correct? Mm-hmm. Can you speak about, this is a story I know pretty familiar with, um, but I feel like it has, a, it has a purpose in kind of spreading it to allow other people to hear it. Can you speak about the, the experience you had when you traveled abroad um, for studies and how that whole, like what was that, what was that social climate? Can you speak about your time um, studying abroad? How was that during that, that period of time? Um, what was your takeaway experiences? How did you feel in that moment? So keep in mind that I was a <clears throat> a young high school um, kid. I was 17 years old. I was given a, afforded a great opportunity. In fact, I didn't learn until years later. My parents had to, actually went out and took a loan, took out a loan in order to, you know, get me to go, uh, have me to go. I was fortunate enough to um, do a summer program at Cambridge University. Okay. All right. Um, and here's the interesting part of it. When the, the the Trump theme is make America great again, I actually there's some they actually resonates with me to a degree. Now this is back in the seventies when I went. All right. There was a time when internationally America was the spot. You know, we we stood for something. And people respected Americans. They respected us and they feared us. And sometimes there's a thin line between that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I forget who it was that said, if, if you could take, uh, if you had the the, uh, the option of being feared or respected, which would you have? The option was feared. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so when I went abroad, all I had to do was open my mouth. Now, keep in mind, there were always people of color in the European countries, all right? But most of them, all of them came from, you know, come from the African continent. And, th- and even during that time, they were still treated differently. They were tre- kind of treated like second-class citizens. But all I had to do was open my mouth, and once they heard my American accent, oh, you're an American, mm-hmm. the whole context changed. I'm a 17-year-old American running around acting as if, you know, I, I'm some type of a, a, a star or something like that. Because right. <laughs> in their mindset, they said, look, you wouldn't be here unless you were somebody or, ha- or had something going on. Or, right. or you're connected to somebody. You wouldn't be here. And they still look at us to a degree that way now, mm-hmm. as I've shared my experiences in uh, Spain with you. But Right. The, I think the big difference now is that, but now a lot of people in Spain have as much money as you. Then they didn't, they, again, they looked at as Americans as coming there uh, because we had, we had the capital to spend, so to speak, all right? Now, the, the, because of the global economy, Globally, anybody can go anywhere, all right? So even though it may be odd, it's, it's, not, um, it's not as peculiar as it was during my day, mm-hmm. right? So um, that experience in and of itself, not only the educational experience, but I tell you where it really was impactful was when I came back. When I came back, Americans looked at me differently. Black folks looked at me differently. One of the reasons I stopped uh, participating in church a lot was that the minister, the preacher at the time, the church I was going to um, welcomed me back. Uh, see, Brother Mittens is back from his trip. Um, hope you didn't go over there and get, get too educated and became an educated fool. Kind of called me out in church like that. That's All right. Um, so again, kind of that, that self-loathing, self-hatred, you know, that, oh, you know, you, you think you're doing something. 
Just remember where you are. Uh, I'd share the story that <clears throat> even later years into my 20s when I started really job hunting, looking for a job after I got my degree. I couldn't get a job because I had one little passage on there that showed that I did summer school at, at Cambridge University. I had one prospective employer uh, kind of ask me, oh, you're a scholar, huh? And maybe my answer uh, probably added fuel to the fire. I said, well, I was not of the scholars, but I was among the scholars. I couldn't get a job as long as I had that that one little educational blurb on there. As soon as I took it off, I could work anywhere. So as long as you had that you studied at Cambridge, Cambridge. you could not, I you couldn't. seemed to not get employment. Anyway. Ex exactly. It's interesting. Black and white saw that as, they, they saw me possibly as an elitist. They, they saw me as something different than, than what I should have been. So, so taking that into consideration, I seen a clip recently um, of a psychologist. She was saying that if you take if you take two if you take two kids, so the the example was the white woman um, was at a parent teacher conference with her son, mm -hmm. and the and the teachers you know everybody was complimenting him saying he does very well in school, um, you know his grades is always you know exceptional this and that, and the mom complimented him. Mm -hmm. She said following you know the black mother comes along with her son, and they give him the same compliments the same the same uh, review. You know, he's an excellent student. You know, his grade is, is better than average. Um, you know, and he does everything right. He's, mm -hmm. he's just a good kid, um, causes no issues. And the mom's response was, yeah, but, and it, it automatically went to her giving a ne negative feedback on her son. Mm -hmm. And the psychiatrist is saying in so many words that that, that traces back to slavery from mm -hmm. a sense of, if the slave master came out and he was like, "Oh man, he's looking good," like he seemed to get, he seemed to understand what's going on. He's mm -hmm. he's taking care of everything. The mothers would speak out negatively, out of fear that they would take him because he was such a good worker. Exactly. So I I, I kind of can relate what I just seen with that psychiatrist and her study back to your your story but, about mm -hmm. how the pastor mm -hmm. indirectly, and he may not have, he may not have even subconsciously knowing what he was doing in that moment but he still almost threw a slight jab at you, mm -hmm. you well I'll, 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 I'll say this i think consciously he didn't know but subconscious subconsciously subconsciously he made the comment subconsciously he didn't realize why he made the comment okay all right now let me also use that same scenario i went to a parent teacher conference of yours and it was a good conference and I was asking questions throughout the conference. You know, your mother was there. I was asking questions throughout the conference and, uh, you know, getting some feedback in regards to what we could do to help enhance your educational experience. A couple hours later, after the conference, your mother calls me laughing. She says, uh, boy, I, you know, you, you really shook those people up. I said, what do you mean? They called me and asked me, what do you do? What, what, was, your, you know, what was your job? Why were, you, why were you able to ask those type of questions? Mm -hmm. All right. So not only do we internalize that maybe we don't we don't want to recognize or acknowledge that we're as good as we are. They also don't want us to recognize that we are as good as we are. They also don't want us to. They'll say, OK, we'll give you the compliment, but but don't go pushing it too far now. Right. All right. Um, the first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson, when he won the belt back in the 1930s, all right? 
newspaper articles, you know, sportscasters were, were just scathing in their reviews of him, okay. And they, and they basically, uh, one article in particular, gave a, uh, a rebuke, if you will, to the black community. It said, do not get too puffed up. Don't get too excited about this. At the end of the day, you're still niggas. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, you, you, because, you know, Max, uh, uh, Jack Johnson had, had beat, beat the white boy up, beat him up pretty good, all right? Yeah. Don't take this as, uh, you know, as, as something, you know, don't take this as you all are still superior now. Pause you right there. Right. Was, that, was that a film reference from Harlem Nights? I've kind of heard that comparison. So how the boxer essentially beat the white guy. Right. Is that was that that storyline in movie form? It possibly could have been. No, no, it it probably. I'm sure there was some connotations to that. Okay. Ali even, uh, you know, when when Ali would would walk in, uh, when they, you know, in uh, in his uh, in the Will Smith depiction of it, Mm -hmm. where he talk about the champ is here, the champ is here. You know, Johnson he was braggadocious. Johnson was, (laughs) Johnson was even uh, bold enough. He had him a white woman back in the 1930s when it was when it was basically illegal and that's what basically got him put in jail because he married a white woman mm-hmm. you know um there are you know johnson had the finest sports cars of the time you know he, used to, he lived in chicago for a good period of time and uh, used to crash his sport cars and go out and buy another one you know that type of thing folks they they like you for the celebrity but they dislike you when you start to use your celebrity but here's the other thing. Um, you also have to be cautious and careful with celebrity. Celebrity affords you a opportunity to have a, uh, a platform, mm-hmm. all right? But we can't go running after every <clears throat> celebrity expecting them to be, they may be a genius in their field, but they're not a genius everywhere else. Exactly. Um, this is a topic not, we, discuss, we discuss pretty often now as right. far as us leaning and trying to leverage too much of celebrities to speak on issues that they may not be versed in. Exactly. Why would I listen to Steve Harvey about relationship advice? <laughs> I, literally, I literally have said this. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> why would I listen to Kanye West about who to vote for when he doesn't right. even vote? Exactly. Okay. You know, again, I, I, I appreciate his genius and, 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 you know, behind the mic, that type of thing. You know, but there, there are times where it's appropriate to not necessarily just stay in your lane, but to understand, recognize what your lane is, and then use your lane for, for other things. You know, mm-hmm. use your lane to give, to, to give, if you will, allow your platform to be used by someone else. Right. Uh, the other night when, when Oprah hosted the 100 Black Men, all right, I'm not a big Oprah fan, I'm not a big Tyler Perry fan, but I appreciate the fact that they use their celebrity and their platform to allow other men of substance to be able to get on there and, mm-hmm. and, and say something. 